Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 25th of June 2023, 11 o'clock service. Tim Davis speaking on the Spirit of Fellowship. Two weeks ago, um, I introduced Ruth's sermon at 11 o'clock as the scary talk in the series. It's entitled The Spirit of Witness. Uh, talk to a random person at church about opportunities for witnessing, and you'll quite possibly see them tensing up and a hastily invented excuse falling out of the lips as they try and get away from you, thinking, don't ask me to be part of a mission outreach, please. Um, but I think there's actually a just as scary word that we're thinking about today. Fellowship. For some people, the very notion of fellowship um, is a terrifying prospect. Uh, you know, think about it, those social situations that we find ourselves in, the nightmare of a forced social situation. Awkward small talk over coffee with people you don't know and you have no way of walking away from the conversation you're stuck in. Dreaded icebreaker games. And especially when it comes to Christian events, the only food you get to eat, quiche. Joking aside, though, because I'm sure most people, it's probably just me who doesn't like quiche, and that's fair enough. Um, joking aside, if you're not really much of a people person, or if you're someone who generally avoids social events, you know, if you're just naturally shy, then the fellowship side of church might not always be your sort of thing. Um, but those sort of instances, you know, is that what fellowship at church is all about? Is it awkward conversations over coffee and icebreaker games at meetings and quiche? Um, and why is it that today it's so important that we think we need to look at how the early church was led by the Holy Spirit in its acts of fellowship? Um, here at Christchurch, I think there's a great many things that we do that would come under the label um, of the fellowship description. And it's, you know, it's a really important part of life here at Christchurch. We have numerous weekly and monthly events for different people young, old, male, female, families. There are home groups which are a great provider of friendship and support and encouragement, providing the opportunity to pray and study the Bible together in a small group. And on Sunday, we have several youth groups where young people can meet with one another. If you want to know more about any of those, have a word with Stephen or myself afterwards. Mission is also a just as important part of ministry here in Christchurch, but it also provides opportunities for social and great fellowship. Now, there's a picture of our Grapevine monthly lunch club, which is a fantastic time of fellowship once a month. And there's a picture of a working party to the Jonas Centre up in North Yorkshire, which several of us went on a few years ago, undertaking work at the site for a week and enjoying great fellowship with one another. So, you know, all in all, I think we actually do a pretty good job of fellowship here at Christchurch. You might think, what exactly do we need to learn from the early church about the importance of fellowship? I suppose on the subject of today's topic, you might also ask, what is the spirit of fellowship? And the answer is not a particular drink in the aisle of the drinks at a supermarket. Um, but anyway, looking at the passage that we've heard, um, the first one. I always love that description of the early church in Acts chapter 2. It just sounds so perfect and idyllic. 
such a wonderful time in the development and growth of the early church. Everyone filled with awe and wonder, no one going without, glad and sincere hearts praising God, and the number of people coming to faith daily. You could also say, looking at that, that it sounds like some original hippie commune or fanatical cult, um, except it didn't require the people to cut themselves off from society. Instead, what the early church was really focused on was worshipping God and prioritising the needs of others. It's in the acts of worship, teaching, praying, praising God, that we often see the identity of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And that was the fellowship of the early church. Just like the early church, our own Christian identity is found through the fellowship of worship. If you were to undertake a sociological analysis of an everyday service in the church, you'd most likely note that Christians in these church services are exposed to texts and teachings and symbols and rituals that are used to develop a sense of Christian identity. We have God's word, the Bible, illuminated and made accessible, hopefully, through sermons. We're surrounded by images that remind us of why we're here. We share in acts of collective praise and worship and prayer through song and praying. And we partake in an act of remembrance through communion. It's in our worship that we truly discover our sense of fellowship as a church. Congregations express their collective identity in worship. And through this process, its members can reinforce their sense of inclusion within a particular group. And so from a sociological analysis... Worship really does reinforce community and fellowship. What is truly different about a church community is that the nature of our worship and our fellowship has at its heart the Holy Spirit. This is what makes churches distinctly Christian rather than merely secular places of community and fellowship. When we look at the early church, particularly when we're reading Acts, it's always interesting to note, I think, you know, the name of Acts is traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles. And yet the 12 Apostles actually play a relatively minor role in the book of Acts. What would perhaps be a more fitting title, and one which some theologians want to use, it would be to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. For it's the Spirit which plays a leading role fulfilling and empowering the believers and guiding and directing the progress of the spread of the gospel. But the Holy Spirit isn't just you know, about God's presence in us, inspiring us to enthusiastic singing and praying in our worship in church. One of the most striking ways that the Holy Spirit empowered the early church was in sacrificial love. And action. Going back to that passage from Acts chapter 2, you can't help but notice, and I make no apologies if you're hoping I was going to gloss over this, the more challenging aspects of the life of the early church. 
It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. The other reading that we had from Acts chapter 4 is even more detailed in this regard. saying no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. There was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. The early church was a community that displayed unity and generosity toward one another. Some members even warranted a special mention, like Joseph, called Barnabas. His nickname Uh, which means son of encouragement, I think is well-deserved. And his generosity and sacrificial offering is particularly noteworthy. As a Levite, he would have not been permitted to inherit land in Israel. So this is potentially land that he himself has bought and acquired for himself at his own expense, maybe as part of a business deal. And yet he was willing to sell it and give the proceeds to the church for the benefit of others, rather than himself. This is what the spirit of fellowship is really about. It's not just about sharing fun and laughter with fellow Christians and others. It's about sacrificial love for fellow Christians and those outside the church. It's not just about sharing prayer requests in a home group or fervently saying amen at the end of prayers in church. It's about being there with that person in their time of darkness and despair, and praying with them, helping sustain them, no matter what else we'd rather do. It's about loving others as we love ourselves, loving them before ourselves. I think it's fair to say that nothing gets the uh, toxic juices flowing amongst Christians on social media than when there's something being said or posted that makes one group feel uncomfortable or prompts another group to question their beliefs. Recently, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, spoke out against the illegal migration bill, calling it morally unacceptable and stating that the bishops in the House of Lords would not abandon their hopes and efforts for a nation and world that helps those in trouble and supports those in need. On social media, there was quite heated, angry disagreement between those who are supportive of Justin Welby's comments and those opposed to them. Now, I'm not going to get into a political debate about this now. Uh, Those of you who know me well enough are likely to know my feelings on this anyway. Um, But I would note that some of the charges levelled by those opposed to the Archbishop's position was to say, Justin Welby, why don't you house asylum seekers first before trying to tell us what to do? Why don't churches open their doors to housing these people? You should be focused on the needs of those here already, native in this country, first of all. And they're not wrong. The church has to lead by example in welcoming and caring for all. Fellowship can never exclusive. Fortunately, churches do 
open their doors to those fleeing persecution and in need of shelter. They do feed the hungry in their immediate communities through the vast network of food banks. And the Archbishop of Canterbury has already opened up his residence to those seeking refuge. A church that is made up of its members, filled with the spirit of fellowship, is one that is truly authentic when it is sacrificial. That is what the early church was about. That's what the forefront of its activity was. And it's described as a place being filled with people of glad and sincere hearts. It sounds wonderful. But of course, that's not to say everyone was in full unity and agreement with each other all the time. The chapters that follow the ones we've read tell of disagreement, grumbling, even an attempt to cheat the church out of money that was promised with quite severe consequences. Chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, if you're interested. It's also important to recognize when we consider a church and all its members is that each member of a congregation has their own story to tell, has their own views and beliefs. And we all have our own unique experience of worshipping in church. And we all have our own unique response to the praise and prayer and fellowship that we experience here. Some, like, Barabba, like Barnabas, sorry, are moved to truly inspiring responses. What would yours be? What would you be willing to give, to sacrifice for the benefit of others? Your time, energy, effort, creative input, money. Each congregation, we must also appreciate, is shaped by its own social demographic. I think it's fair to say that we have a much greater potential to be financially generous than a church in a slum in Mumbai, for example. And yet it's often those very churches in the poorest areas where we see the church community coming together in the spirit of fellowship, of sacrificial love, so evidently ensuring that no one goes without. When I was um, a young teenager here at Christchurch, the great American evangelist, Billy Graham, came to the UK for a final tour. Uh, I remember going to listen to him at Wembley Stadium with a lot of other people from this church. You may remember, if you were around at that time, seeing, uh, it seemed to be every teenager or 20-something used to have this white T-shirt with the words life misspelt on the front and come and hear one man make sense of it on the back. Uh, it's just what we needed to wear. It was quite great. Um, I have to confess, I don't really remember much about what Billy Graham spoke about at Wembley Stadium partly because I was too interested in just wandering around Renby Stadium. I'd never been there before. But I do remember um, that at some point, Billy Graham told a story about what the journey to faith is like for many people. Um, and it went something like this. I'm probably you know, putting my own version, but it was essentially similar like this. He told a story of a beautiful princess whose father, the king, had decided it was time for his daughter to marry. Instead of just inviting you know, any old prince from another country to come and tie the knot and keep the royal blood going, he decided instead to test the bravery, commitment, and determination of the men in his land. And only one, 
who could display such courage and purpose would be deemed worthy of his daughter's hand in marriage. Now all the men in the land were assembled uh, on, a um, on a river bank and told that in order to win the king's daughter's hand in marriage, they needed to jump from this steep bank down into a fast flowing river, the current so strong that only the strongest person would be able to survive without being dashed on the rocks further downstream and carried over a toppling great waterfall at the end. And if you managed to have survived that, you got into the deep water of the river, where there are a bunch of hungry alligators ready to devour you for lunch. And if you managed to get through the alligators, at the other end was thick, squelching, oozing mud, almost impossible to climb out of, and still with a bunch of hungry alligators coming towards you for lunch. If you managed to survive that and get across, showing your determination, the king judged you would be worthy of his daughter's hand in marriage. So he raised the bridge across the river to the castle and waited to see which of the men would be brave enough to try. And they gradually wandered around the, around the edge of the river, but were too scared to go any closer, knowing that if they fell down or jumped down this deep bank, they wouldn't be able to get back up. They'd have to go across. They'd have no other choice but to try and swim across a seemingly impossible task. And after a while, the king was about to give up, as there seemed to be nobody willing to undertake this challenge, when all of a sudden, there was this almighty splash and noise and commotion, and all eyes were drawn to this one man, frantically swimming against the current, getting gradually and gradually carried down, but in this final effort, he manages to break free of the current, and he catches his breath and sees a horde of alligators coming towards him, who've been alerted by the noise and the commotion, the shouts and cheers of the men on the bank shouting encouragement and warning. And so with barely any energy left, he darts in and out, swinging around and grabbing hold of debris to poke and fend off the alligators and just about makes it to the mud. And he collapses there and he finds himself sinking. And he thinks, oh, I can't do this. And he tries to wade and he's sinking further and further. And she finds some reeds and grabs hold and just manages to use it for leverage and just drags himself out of the river, onto the bank, collapses, exhausted, trembling at the feet of the king. And the king says, congratulations. There's shouts of cheers on the other side of the bank. He says, you are worthy of my daughter's hand in marriage. You have proved your determination commitment. What do you have to say? And the man says, just one thing. Who pushed me? <laughs> now, Billy Graham told that story about the need for sometimes to come to faith. We just need a little push or a strong push. But in our Christian lives, we still often need a nudge, a push to move us into action. If you're feeling moved, nudged by the Holy Spirit, by the spirit of fellowship to do something, but you're not sure what, here's just one suggestion. Uh, I mentioned the donor center at the start of this talk. And it's a Christian holiday retreat and conferencing centre with lovely log cabins to stay in, set in beautiful countryside in the Yorkshire Dales, that also provides subsidised holidays to those in need of respite. It was founded by former members of this church, and it's some it's a mission partner we've supported ever since. And the acquiring of the site for this was only made possible through the generous donations of many people, including many from Christchurch, and also people being willing to make interest-free loans of substantial sums of money. 
The centre now has the opportunity to acquire the rest of the estate which is linked to the site, which borders it, and contains a wonderful manor house and further conferencing facilities. And the new managers of the Jonas Centre, Seb and Rachel, have a vision to see the Jonas Centre grow as a Christian retreat and conferencing facility for the north of England and beyond, and providing even more subsidised, life-changing respite breaks for those in need. But again, that will only be possible through unexpected generosity and sacrificial giving. There are many other ways we can respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure Stephen will happily talk to you about the various projects and initiatives and events that we run here at Christchurch that need support, that need financial support, that need people to be there with their input and their time and their creativity. What we learn from the early church is that spirit-led worship and fellowship is at its most real and authentic when it's not about us. It's not about some warm, fuzzy feeling, but it's about others. Within Christian fellowship, we look not for individual happiness, but for the kingdom of God. The question remaining is, what will you do to further God's kingdom today?